Aloha kakayaka. I invite you to turn your Bibles to two passages. The first passage is 2 Corinthians 13, and the next passage is 1 John. As you turn there, I want to remind you guys that we said last week that we were going to kick off a new two-week topical series that we're calling Current Events. And many of you know that the current event has been going on for a while now with COVID-19, but instead of focusing so much on this current event, I want to focus on two um, doctrines that needs to be talked about in light of COVID-19. And so this week, we're going to, today we're going to talk about our soteriology, which means the doctrine of salvation. We're going to look at that today. And next Sunday, we're going to look at eschatology, which is the doctrine of final times or what you would know as end times. Now, today's message is going to be filled with a lot of scriptural and content. So I want to encourage you guys to keep up with us as we look at the scriptures today. Also, I would encourage you, if you miss a note, you can go on the Bible app and get our notes, or you can wait for our family worship guide to come out this week to get all these extra scriptures and content that we're looking at. And as we look at this topic today on salvation, I believe there is this verse on salvation is clearly communicated as an overview right on our church website. You could go to ohanachurch.com in our belief section, And you can see what we believe about salvation. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at this overview definition that we have for you on our website. But also, I want to break down from beginning to end on what the doctrine of salvation, right, is all about biblically. We believe that salvation is a gift brought to man by the free grace and pleasure of God. Salvation was accomplished through Christ's substitutionary life and death and his resurrection from the grave. Salvation can be received only by repentance of sins and personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I believe for many of us in this room, we would affirm this to be absolutely true. I would believe for the most part for evangelical Protestant churches, they would hold fast to this definition of doctrine. However, if we could be honest today, right? Like if we could be real honest today, we may have an understanding that sometimes we doubt our salvation. Amen? I'm guilty of it. I know some of us in this room who who have who are new to the faith, or maybe here in the faith for a while that you're new, you uh, doubt your salvation. And I believe there's two reasons why we doubt our salvation. Number one, we constantly struggle with our sin. No matter how much you try to be good, you always default and continue to act upon your sin. Can I get a witness out there, right? But that's a major part of doubting salvation that I believe some people have struggles with. Also, here's probably the biggest one, the final one, that why we doubt our salvation. You were probably taught the doctrine of fallen grace. This was a doctrine I grew up in, in the church denomination I was raised in. And the doctrine of fallen grace has been around for centuries. 
However, made popular during the Reformation in the 16 and 1700 by a group called the Arminius, who were followers of a man named Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius was a contemporary and former student of John Calvin and his Reformed school. He tested Calvin's view on eternal security with, the, with his thesis on fallen. From grace, also known as conditional perseverance of the saints. After his death in 1612, followers of Jacob Arminius created a theological framework called the Five Articles or Pillars of Remonstrance. Its final point was, is what we're going to address today the doctrine of fallen grace, which meant that someone could genuinely be saved. However, are capable to lose their salvation if they chose to sin and are rebel against God again. Now, as a church who has a high view of God, we'll say it every week, right? We will allow scripture to interpret what? Scripture. So, this is how we're going to analyze our topic today, right? What I want us to do is to look at two specific verses that I shared with you earlier. And I want us to answer this very question when it comes to the doctrine of salvation. Can a Christian lose their salvation? Let me say that again before you say anything. Can a Christian lose their salvation? I do know we are persuaded by theology in this room of all sorts. And so, what I want us to do, instead of giving you guys my opinion, How I was raised. I really want us to analyze these two scriptures that gives us a foundation of our soteriology, also known as the doctrine of salvation. So, would you stand with me in the perfect reading of God's holy word? In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul states, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the what? Say it louder. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this was, this is, this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I want you to meditate on those words. Now jump to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says this. I write these things, meaning the reason I've written these letters to you, church, who believe in the Son of God, that you may know that you have what? Eternal life. God, we pray that we would not be persuaded by natural politics of this world or persuaded by our opinions. Our, our, thought, our emotions, but we would be persuaded by your texts and your scriptures. And we identify that our politics, our emotions, our traditions, at most times does not line up with your scriptures. So we pray that we would see a high view of who you are based on the text of scripture. Lord, I do pray that you would genuinely rescue people this morning from the inside out through the power of your word, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray and we say loud and proud. Amen. Amen. In Ohoyalalo, you may be seated. I want to analyze really two words today. 
I want to analyze two terms and words that really comes out of these two verses. And the first term I want us to analyze is the word exam. Say it with me. One, two, three. Exam. Paul tells every Christian in in 2 Corinthians that we are to examine ourselves personally. This is a careful and serious approach. This is the picture and process of an autopsy being done over a dead person. There is a careful and skillful practice taking place. In fact, it has to be so careful and so skillful in such a way that the body in the autopsy must be deconstructed in order to get a proper analysis of the individual. Like so, Paul is telling all believers to examine themselves in the same manner. Church of God, is this how you examine yourselves? Is there a careful and serious approach and skillful approach to your life? Do you examine yourself in this way? In addition, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, examine yourself before partaking in the Lord's Supper. Paul says in Galatians 6, to test and examine your true motives. Lamentations 340 says to test or examine our ways, our life, and then return back to the Lord. The most famous examination passage is found in Psalms 139, where King David says, search me, O God, and know my heart, right? Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting This is consistent pattern in the scriptures that self-examination is biblical. However, I would take it a step further. Since Paul is writing specifically to the church of Corinth, I believe he's actually addressing the task of the local church body to also examine one another in the faith. Are we doing this as a church, right? The phrase Paul uses in 2 Corinthians is the phrase examine yourself. And when he said yourself, it's actually using the plural form, examine yourselves. It is written in a plural connective sense. Therefore, since scripture is our authority and the way we see our high view of God, we must adhere to it. And here's the tension, right? You guys ready? Because I know you and me have struggled with this, right? There's a tension in understanding proper examination of one another. What is that? Well, we heard the quote before. Right, listen to me. We usually say this. It's not my job to what? Judge others. How many of you have made that excuse before? Right? Thank God I'm not the only guilty one, right? But I would argue with you that the Bible would disagree with you. John 7 specifically says, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. What do we see here? The Bible is not saying that you shouldn't judge. The Bible just said you should judge rightfully. There is a right way and a wrong way to judge one another. But we are called to love each other. How? By judging one another. The wrong way is to look at the outside. What they do, what they don't do. The right way is to look at the what? The heart, the motive, the desire. However, I will be very clear with you guys that I would say that the outside bears fruit of the inside. Other words of using judge, the word judge, the word correct in the Bible. Rebuke, reproof, to fault, to warn, 
Matthew 18, 15 to 17, in the way of handling church discipline. Matthew says to tell your brother his fault. Luke 17 says, rebuke your brother who is in sin. Titus 1.13 says, rebuke false teachers within the church. 2 Thessalonians 3.15 warns all of us Christians to warn our brothers and sisters of their sin. And then Ephesians chapter 4 says it best, we are to do it with love. Well, what does love look like when it comes to correcting some people or correcting your, getting corrected by someone else? It doesn't really feel loving. Can I get a witness out there, right? But when I think about love, when we're correcting someone, when we're rebuking someone, when we're judging them rightfully, we're doing it with patience. We're doing it in an honorable and respectful way. We're not talking down to them, but we're ministering to them. And I am not perfect at this. This is something that God has continued to teach me in the scripture. So why is examination personally and publicly in the church important? Well, let's look at the scripture. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the what? Faith. Right? This answers the question. How do we identify ourselves to be true believers? We examine one another. We examine ourselves. I mean, how do we know if we're truly uh, saved? Right? First off, we don't point to an event right? when we got saved, meaning there was a revival and I said a prayer after a preacher. I walked down an aisle. I filled out a salvation card. I prayed with somebody. for It's not an event. It goes deeper than that. We got to ask the actual simple biblical question. For instance, as we examine ourselves, here's a simple biblical question we got to ask. Ready? What do you love? What do you love? Do you love the things of Jesus? This is how we should examine ourselves. And based on that, I want to give you five marks of a true believer. Number one, you have a love for the scriptures. Now, I want to let you know what I did not say, right? You have a love, right, for the style of worship music we play. You have a love for modern-day prophecy and signs and wonders and visions. No, no. You have a love for the Scriptures. Now, I believe God is miraculous. He can move, but He will not do so outside of His Word because His Word is complete. Amen? It's sufficient. Secondly, you will love the church. You will love the fellowship with the church. You will love the growing together with the church. You will love everything about the church. Why? Because it's the bride of Christ in which he died for and in which he will come back for. Thirdly, you will love the loss. We're not coming here just for kumbaya moments. Hello? But we pray that the true gospel that rescues us from the inside out would also be the true gospel that shares Jesus with the ends of the earth. This is why we plant churches. This is why we take trips to the other parts of the world in our convention, in our state, in our our denomination, in this church. Why? So that people could see these marks. And not just experience these marks, but they they can also be a part of it as well. For you will have humility. You will not be proud, boastful, brash, self exalting. There will be a sweet brokenness, right? And you're about your need for Christ. And lastly, you will walk in righteousness. You will walk in righteousness. This is the result of true salvation and not the means for salvation. Because of Christ, you will have a desire, right, to do what is right. 
Because of Christ, you will have a heart to long for these things. You will continue to struggle with sin. But listen to me. Don't try to look from within yourself, but rather look to the one who is faithful to save and sustain you, Jesus Christ. If we always look at ourselves, at each other, right? Then we're always going to find fault. How do I know? Because in all our political realm right now in America, we're blaming everybody. Well, guess what? We are all to blame. If we're going to find an answer to our problems, we have to look to Christ. Now, I'm not saying we need to be secret sensitive about it. We need to address these issues. And starting in the church, we have no control outside of the church. But we have influence in the church because of the word of God. John MacArthur says it this way. It's not the perfection and demonstration, your life for salvation. It's the direction. And it's the direction of love, humility, and righteousness, which is found in Christ. You see, examining yourselves is a gift from God, saints, through salvation that displays godly wisdom. And the proverb says, fools despise this kind of wisdom. How do you know if you are truly in the faith? How do you know if you're truly saved? You examine yourselves in light of Jesus. You look at the scriptures and you see not just what Jesus has done, or you know, what would Jesus do, but what has Jesus fulfilled and completed? And one of the scriptures that has been taken out of context, context in the area of salvation is actually found in John chapter 15. And I want us to examine John 15 with the understanding of salvation through the lens of Christ. Jesus says this in verses 5 and 6. I am the vine. This is Jesus saying, I'm the vine. You, the followers, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Right? Remember that one? Now let's keep moving. This is where scriptures take out of context. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and what? Burn. I want you to be very clear. This is where people will hold fast to losing your salvation or falling from grace. But actually, if we understand the context, Jesus is making a distinctive between true believers in verse 5 and false believers in verse 6. And here's the outcome. If you're truly a believer of Christ, you will abide and you will bear fruit. If you are a false believer, right, you will not abide and will not bear fruit. Guess who was around Jesus at this time that, could, that we realized that there was true and false believers? The true believers was 11 of them. We'll know throughout scripture. But there was one false believer that would hang around them that would ultimately betray Jesus. His name is Judas. So he's, taught, he's giving a big spectrum of what followers of God look like. There is false converts that followed Jesus back in the days of his time here on earth. And there are still false converts that's following Jesus today on earth. And here's the confusion. The only reason the true believer will bear fruit and the false believers will not bear fruit and be thrown in the fire is not because of their conditional response. All right, this is not preached as much anymore, all right? The true believer and the false believer, they're not true or false because of their conditional response. If we look at the, scripture as a, the scriptures as conditions, you've missed out on what the verses that we're going to read. That's what we're going to read in context. Look at verse 1. It says, 
I am the true vine. This is Jesus. And my father is the what? Vine dresser. If there is conditions in these verses, this is the only condition that matters. Not the condition of man, but the condition of the son and the what? Father. Everything stems from verse 1 when understanding the vine and the branches. He says, every branch in me. Again, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now, if you look at the do's and the don'ts in this text of the man's response and condition, you're missing out on the text. You have to go from verse 1. Jesus is the vine. The father is the vine dresser. That's where everything stems from. Going on, he says, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Look at the condition. The condition is not man's condition. The condition is Christ's condition. He washed us in the word. Going on. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. When we look at these words, abide Abide in me, abide in this, do not do this, this. If we're looking at it from a man's point of view, yes, you can lose your salvation. But that's not how the text is being communicated. Because in all of the Gospel of John, he talks about one significant term. You ready? Eternal life. Eternal life. The tension in all of Scripture is that we are conditioned in our flesh to look at Scripture to see ourselves instead of looking at Scripture to see God himself. Let me say it again. The tension in all of Scripture is that we, men, are conditioned in our flesh to look at Scripture to see ourselves instead of looking at Scripture to see our righteous God alone. We are kept not by what we do, whether we abide or not. We are kept because we have this intimate love relationship with the Son and with the Father. And what they do in their intimate love relationship within the power of the Spirit is that they rescue people. And when they rescue sinners, our abiding life is not me trying to live up to God's standard, but it's doing what Christ has done for us on the cross in doing the work of salvation for us alone, 100%. We bring no participation to salvation. Why do you think we sing songs? For you alone are worthy. It does not say, for you and Zeke are worthy. Holy, holy, holy. Zeke, God, oh my heart. No! God, Jehovah, Yahweh, he is worthy to be praised. This is why I'm talking to our team. We need to reevaluate the songs we sing. Because the songs we sing probably looks more like man's, right, efforts and man's value over God alone. John 15 is clear that the reason why we are, we are abiding in, based on true believers and false believers, is because of the vine and the vine dresser. Paul emphasized this vine. Romans 11, he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who supports the root, the vine, 
but the root that supports what? You. This is saying there is no cooperative work in salvation with man and God. Salvation is 100% given and accomplished by God alone. And what we see is warning passages. Warning passages. One of the most misquoted passages that I've seen all over the internet and all over Facebook Live of salvation is quoted through Hebrews chapter 6. It says, for it is impossible... It is impossible. Now, we don't like that word, right? Because we like Philippians 4.13, right? For I can do all things through Christ, right? But look at this word. This one time, God, you, Paul, you, or with the author, not Paul, but the author of Hebrews uses the word impossible. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God in their own harm and holding Him up in contempt. This is saying, in the direction of true believers and false believers, if you truly trusted in God based on God's merit, not man's merit, right? It's impossible to walk away. It's impossible to lose your salvation. The, the verse is not based on a condition. The verse is based on God's sovereign act. Right? And he warns all true believers, this is how you measure or examine your life as a true, genuine believer. Some, someone would say that, that they're falling away. Well, they fall away because, you know, there was never a true believer. It's true. People, people use the words apostasy. I believe in that. And Hebrews 6 and John 15 confirms this. However, for the true believer, these warnings, this isn't me, this is good. For the true believers, these warnings are how God preserves his people. How does my child preserve from not being punished? He listens to me. He follows my directions. Right? It's like soul, like man, we are to follow God. This is how we are to measure, right, who we are in the Lord. Last truth, and we'll be powerful. Secondly, the term I want to analyze is believe. This word must be restored in the evangelical church today. We don't use it in the same way it was meant to be used and traditionally used. In fact, the word believe is the Greek word out of the verb pizioo. It means to be entrusted with. The word believe is used 244 times in the Greek New Testament. This same word, pizioo, is derived from the Greek word, pistis, which means faith. This is what we know about biblical faith and belief. It's not something we are born with. Let me tell you what we're born with. We're born into sin. And because we're born into sin, we have no faith. Right? So sin results into being dead to God. And since we're dead to God, it's impossible to have belief in God. We're not born with this personal faith. So how does one believe or have faith in God based on this Greek usage of the word and definition? It's given to us. It's given to us from God himself in salvation. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. It says, For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the what? Gift of God. Grace wasn't the only gift. So was faith. 
Why? It goes on. Look, it's the gift of God, not a result of what? Works, so that no one would boast. I would argue that those who believe in this term that I'm going to use right now, free will or man's choice, does not line up with a biblical understanding of how faith and belief is used in Scripture. Paul says faith is a gift, meaning you never had it in the first place. He also says the purpose of the understanding of faith and belief being a gift from God is that no one would celebrate salvation as to the point that you have made the best decision in your life. Have you heard those Christians, right? I made the best decision. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to be called to the mission field. I have decided, right, to be baptized. And I understand the point of it, but this letter is written because man is flawed. God is reminding us that we did not rescue ourselves. It's a sovereign gift given by him. Titus 3.5 emphasizes this. For God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own what? Mercy by the washing of what? Regeneration, which means the new birth, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, this right here covers everything we've talked about and denounces free will right at its core. It says, but to all who did receive, now if you look at the word receive, a lot of churches use that as a conditional response, but no, you got to keep on reading. How do I know? Read on. It says, but to all who did receive him, who what? Believe. You see how powerful it is when we understand terms scripturally? Right? They didn't receive him out of their own will. They received him because they believed. What we know about believe? It means pizio. It means we've been entrusted with, with this gift to believe. But it doesn't stop there to support it. It says, he gave us the right to become what? Children of God. Now you may say, oh man, that's still like conditional. Like I have to receive. I have to believe. Keep reading on. Who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of what? Man, but of who? God. That's proper exegesis. I would argue and prove biblically that man's will is not free at all. The great Martin Luther, reformer, said that man's will is in bondage. In bondage to what? The yoke of sin. Right? Here's the, here's the joy, but I want you to see, here's the joy of 1 John chapter 5. Uh, that it gives us today and forevermore. First John chapter 5, verse 13 says this, I have written these things. Hawaiians, I hope you're ready for this, man. I have written these things. This is the reason why I've written this whole letter to you and the gospel. To you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have what? Eternal life. John wrote this letter because there were Pharisees and Judaizers and Essenes in the New Testament church that was telling people that you have to do all these things in order to maintain your salvation. But John is saying, no, I'm written these things that your belief in Christ alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone, because of the scriptures alone, because of grace, listen to me, right, can assure you. And let you know that you do have eternal life. Thank God that when God said whoever believes will not perish, that he didn't say whoever, the, whoever believes will have temporary life, but they would have eternal life. John is consistent with this terminology. John assures us that our salvation 
is determined by the one who gave it, the one who will sustain it, and the one who will see it through the very end of the age. John 6, 44. John also says in chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me, and they follow me. I give them what? Eternal life, and they will never what? Perish, and no one will snatch them out of what? My hand, this is Jesus talking. Now he points to the Father and he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the, the Father's hand as well. I and the Father are what? One. But if you argue for free will status, those who hold this position would say, Yeah, but it doesn't talk about us walking out of his hand personally. But here's the problem. I can argue with you that when Jesus says, can no one snatch you out of the hand of the Father and himself, he meant you personally too. He meant you personally too. Look at it, look at it. The word free will is not in the scriptures. Now, there's other doctrinal words that we believe in that's not in the scripture, but I, I implore you to examine these truths. Right, Romans 8, 29, 30 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Meaning that he's not going to give up on them. He's going to conform them from beginning to end. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also what? Called. And those he called, he also what? Justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. With all the scripture evidence... That we have been pointed to today. When it comes to salvation. Either God is sovereign. Or man is sovereign. But here's the reality. They both can't be sovereign. One has to be. One has to be over the other. And I would argue with you. That if you believe that man has this free ability. To choose or do not choose God. Then you're missing out. On why salvation exists. Salvation exists because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. What can a dead man do for himself? Nothing. Dead man don't pay bills. Dead man don't make decisions. Dead man don't do nothing. Because they're dead. So another way of saying this is a biblical crossroads we must examine. Either salvation is determined by the condition of man or it determined by the completed work of Christ Jesus. Listen to me, guys. God does not need your participation to save you. Are you with me? God does not need your help or participation to save mankind. How do we know this? Let's look at creation. Did God need our help when he says, let there be light? Did God need Egypt's help to get them out of oppression? No. Did God need your help to part the Red Sea? Did God need our help to bring Israel out of Babylon from exile, as we learn in Nehemiah? No. So as we look at this question, can a Christian lose their salvation? Well, if we're examining Scripture, that's the wrong question. The real biblical question we must address is, can Jesus lose a Christian? 
and the disciples and Jesus himself makes it clear. He will not lose a Christian. Why? Because it's determined by his penal substitutionary atonement. And here's going to be the hardest part of us today. Since mankind has always want control of God's glory, we will always fight the battle of this doctrine. Because we always want a part in God's plan of redemption. How do we know that? That's why we want to be leaders in pol- as politicians. That's why we want to have all these roles and all these, these aspirations and ambitions. Because we want, without saying, what God already owns. But how can you be assured of this salvation? How can you be assured that you can't lose this salvation? Look at Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So if you're like me, when I've heard this doctrine the first time, clarified through the true gospel of Jesus Christ, I struggled with this for many years. I still struggle with it at times. But again, I got to go to the text of scripture. I got to examine it for myself, what it truly means. And so you may say, then why do missions? Why do missions? Well, because God's, God's word tells us to do missions. It tells us to go out there and preach the gospel faithfully. Then the second question is this, right? Well, this kind of salvation is a, a robotic kind of love. Well, let me tell you, robots wasn't created back in Jesus' time, first off. Secondly, if a dead man is dead in their transgression, and a dead man can't do nothing for themselves to be saved and redeemed, I don't see this as a robotic love. I see this as a biblical love. That while we were yet dead in our sin, Christ died for our behalf. It's a true love. So, like, how should we respond? How should we respond? By trusting the promises of God. That is much biblical in us telling you by saying this prayer after me, by walking down the aisle, by filling out this car, by showing up at church every week faithfully, whether online or in person. But that, that, that is much biblical. Why? Because all that I just talked about is the result and not the means. Let me, let me give you an illustration. There's a big tricycle. Three wheels. And those three wheels have a centerpiece. The big front wheel, it's a big front wheel, is God's promises. The left wheel, smaller wheel, right, is God's word. Right? And, and in God's word, I would say this is his warning. The right will is God's Holy Spirit. Right? Now some of you are going to say, oh, he's a heresy. They're using tricycles in the sermon and all that. I want you to see this. Because they operate and function together. The promises of God, right, functions how we understand warnings and how we understand God's Spirit. God is sovereignly working out our salvation, right, 
through his promises, through his warnings, and through his spirit. Listen to me. If we look at all this, has to be whether the man pedals or not, right? You're missing out on the root of the whole tricycle. It's not the pedal that gives the tricycle wheels, right? It's the wheels. It's the wheels that give the tricycle movement. So how should we respond? We should believe from Scripture the promises of God. Let me remind you what these promises are. John 5, 24. Those who hear and believe have eternal life and passes through judgment. Can I get a hallelujah there, right? John 3, John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Hallelujah, right? John 10, 28. We said it. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 2 Timothy 2.10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That's the fancy word for believers, true believers. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with, guess what? Eternal glory. Can I get an amen out there, right? Colossians 2.2 says this, that our hearts may be encouraged, be knit up together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ Jesus. God assures you through the Holy Scriptures that what He began in you, He will complete to the very age when Jesus returns for His people. If you believe on the Lord Jesus, a belief that is based on the finished work of Christ, and you received Him, you trusted in Him, you repented of your ways, then guess what? What God saves, He will endure to the very end. So it's not that I can lose my salvation, but can Jesus lose a Christian? And the Bible says, He that He gives eternal life will never perish glory to his name that pumps me up that makes me want to be better and live better and live holier not for the sake of pleasing God but because God is pleased by his son the result of the son's pleasure on the cross in the death in his burial in his resurrection in his ascension and his one day coming back to home to take us to glory he is pleased with that sacrifice therefore what I do is nothing greater than Jesus but is the pleasure of what God has done for us 2,000 years ago that today I can trust in his finished work on the cross for you, for me, for my babies, for your babies. For why? Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom in who? Christ alone. If salvation was up to me, I would lose it every day. But because it's not up to me, and it's up to the Savior of the world, He who began a good work in me will perfect it, will complete it, will do it, will sustain it to the very end until He returns. And until He returns, we shall glory and glory and glory and glory to the nations of the earth so that people will repent of their sins, trust in the Jesus and the Holy Spirit of Scripture, and that we know and they will taste that He is Ono. That's the salvation we trust in. So here's an encouraging truth before we stand and we sing. No one who truly belongs to Jesus can truly fall away. We can take joy in the fact that both the warnings and the promises of God we see in Scripture effectively keeps us in the family of God. Would you stand with me as we sing a response song to our King. God, we love you. We trust you.
We worship you in spirit and in truth. In your name we pray. Sing it out.